Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of On Air with the Chair. As always, I'm Captain Nick James, your MEC chairman, and joining me today is Sam Friedman Cowan, who has actually two roles inside the ALPA structure. He is our Grievance Committee Chair, and he's also the first officer rep in the New York City LEC market. I'll be talking with Sam during this episode about uh, the Grievance Committee, the members that uh, serve in that committee, the processes that are involved, including differences between pilot issue forms, remedy requests, grievances, and arbitrations. We're also going to be talking with Sam about our current grievances, including the ongoing grievance summit, where we are looking to work with the company to reduce a backlog of grievances that had built up uh, over the course of 2020 and a few that uh, were filed earlier. Typically, at the end of each episode, we like to answer a pilot's question from the front line. Unfortunately, we did not have any questions submitted. So if you do have a question or a topic for the show, please email edvonair at alpa.org. Again, that is edvonair at alpa.org. And one final point to note before we get into the meat and potatoes of the Taze podcast if you haven't had a chance to view our inaugural episode of On Air with the Chair Live, which has taken the place of the all-pilot conference calls, there is a video recording that is now available online at the EDV MEC homepage. Simply use your Alpha login credentials, proceed to My MEC and Members Home, and it will right, be right there on the homepage for you to view and to listen to. All right, so in this section, we always talk about what's new this month at Endeavor. And for the pilots of Endeavor Air, I think the newest addition to the long list of LOAs that we have is going to be our Positive Space LOA, which has been very, very well received by the pilots of Endeavor Air because this is going to be a very, very good benefit for us. But, you know, we want to talk a little bit about what was included in that LOA, the benefits that are afforded to us, and more specifically, what did we trade with the company to get there, and most importantly, why did we trade that? That's going to be um, probably the crux of the discussion in this section. So as you know, we are going to be receiving positive space travel to and from work assignments. This includes line holders and reserves. The program is set to go live on March 20th, but may be implemented earlier if the programming can be completed. And it is going to be for the same duration that it continues to be in effect at Delta, including any extensions. In LOA 2004, which was the Delta LOA that secured positive space through their negotiations, they secured it for 13 bid months originally. However, they put a mechanism in there that allows that to be extended if additional CARES Act or additional federal funding is made available to Delta Airlines. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to take it, it just is made available. We've already seen one extension go through, and we are on the precipice of possibly seeing a second extension go through that has increased that duration by an additional four bid periods. And again, if we have round three or round four of federal funding, we could see this program go well into 2022, possibly even touch 2023. So we will be maintaining parity with Delta in that program for that same duration. Some other things that might be important to note about the positive space program, it is a little different than the unable to commute policy. As pilots have become accustomed to the UTC policy, what they enjoy under the UTC is the ability to get a confirmed seat 
even if an aircraft is oversold. That is not going to be the case with positive space travel. There needs to be seats available in order for you to book yourself uh, positive space. Now, if there happens to not be any seats available, you can still use Call in Honest and you can still use UTC. So in other words, if you provide yourself for two, with two flight options and the second one happens to be on Delta, that would allow you to gain a positive space ticket on an oversold flight. However, you will not be able to book yourself on that flight because you would have to be using the provisions of UTC, not of our recently negotiated LOA. Another aspect to this LOA is the single flight call-in honest has been secured on a permanent basis. Throughout the TVLOA LOA discussions, we were able to secure that through the October 2021 bid period. But now through these discussions, we have been able to secure that on a permanent basis, which is a very, very big win for our pilot group, and we were very happy to be able to achieve it. Single flight call-in honest is something that is going to positively impact every commuting pilot and potentially any pilot that may be picking up open time or assignments outside of their domicile. And we'll go into more details on what we traded to be able to do that and, and more importantly, the reasons why. But we certainly wanted to highlight that for the pilot group during this discussion. The last item that the Endeavor MEC was able to achieve was no furlough protections. Now, you've heard me talk in previous podcasts, all pilot conference calls, chairman's letters, that there really isn't such, such a thing as a no furlough protection because the company holds the ultimate card of bankruptcy. And that is true, which is why if we're going to achieve a quote unquote no furlough protection, we really can't give up a whole lot of value in order to achieve that. So having it inside a package where we're really only suspending a, a couple of grievances and only giving up one, uh, it's a very, very small price to pay to have some level of safety and security as we proceed through the recovery phase of the pandemic, which could still have some speed bumps. You know, it is very good to know that we are going to be hiring next month, and it seems to um, us that those numbers may even increase from originally planned as the year goes on, especially with all of the pilots at Delta being recalled and the possibility of interviews beginning in Q4 at our mainline partner. So those are all really great things and all positive signs. But again, we could hit some speed bumps where we may be facing uh, the potential for furloughs. And we want to make sure that we have that at least a baseline protection. And that was provided to us with very little cost on our end. So now that we've discussed what we were able to achieve, let's talk about what we traded in order to get those benefits. And we really discussed four grievances with the company, positive space grievance, the Flicka grievance, the OE withholding grievance, and the trade board ad out of domicile grievance. Three out of those four grievances, we really just put in a suspended mode. We're not giving up our contractual positions. We're not giving up our contractual rights. We're not giving up any language inside of the JCBA. We're simply withdrawing the grievances and finding a negotiated settlement for the timeframes stated inside the grievance. So for instance, if the company were to take down Flicka again, or if we were to get past a time frame where we didn't have positive space and a similar program was implemented at Delta, we could make the same contractual argument in the future. So we, we haven't weakened the JCBA at all by trading these three suspended grievances in order to get real benefits for us today. The only grievance that we, that we removed with prejudice, which means we will not be able to raise the issue again, is this trade board ad out of domicile grievance. And let's talk a little bit about what that is. So right now, a pilot 
there was a dispute whether a pilot could add a leg segment out of domicile through a trade board swap. And the company has maintained the position that we don't have that right under the contract. We felt that the contract language was very clear and very strong, but we were willing to find that negotiated solution and withdraw that grievance because there is still a mechanism to accomplish that trade, and it's called a, a jet bridge swap. The only difference is with a trade board ad out of domicile, you could do it as far in advance as the two pilots agreed to do it, where the jetway trade has to be done within 24 hours. So there's a little bit of a shorter time frame to accomplish that, but there is still a mechanism to be able to get that done. Now, what I really want to hone in on is the Flicka grievance, because that was a, a very, very big and important grievance for the pilot group. And I know that it affected everyone at Endeavor. And this includes not just commuters, it also includes people that live in base. And so let's talk about what the options would have been had we pursued the Flicka grievance, um, or what options are there are if we pursue any grievance. And Sam will be touching on this more in the podcast, so we won't get into too great a detail here. But essentially what we were gonna find is two options. We were either going to win the Flicker grievance or we were going to lose the grievance. And if we won the grievance, it was likely that all of an all an arbitrator would do is provide us with a cease and desist, which means company you violated the terms of the JCBA, okay? Don't do it again. There would not be any remedy, there would not be any punitive damages. So to be able to solve this grievance for real permanent tangible value for the pilot group, it was a very, very big win for us. So that's kind of how that Flicka and Call in Honest came together. Now we do recognize that that benefit really benefits commuters or it benefits people that are picking up trips outside of their domicile. We do understand that there wasn't necessarily quote unquote anything in there for the pilots that reside inside domicile. And sometimes that's just how these deals end up coming together. But the MEC is aware of that, and next time that we have an opportunity to prioritize a, a quid, non-economic or otherwise, we will recognize that we just made a major improvement for the commuters, and then it would be time to go after one of our other strategic objectives for the people that live in base. So why did we negotiate for something that we already believed that we owned? Well, during 91 discussions, the focus was on the unable to commute policy at Delta. Actually, there was a lot of different focuses, but that's where we ended up landing. And the unable to commute policy is still in effect at Delta, as it is in effect here today. And the unable to commute policy only covers front side commuting. Now, there were, other, some, there were some other practical concerns that we were trying to address during those discussions, such as our degraded commutability. And we're already witnessing that again with all of the positive space travel that's being afforded to Delta pilots and Delta flight attendants, along with the changes to the retiree pass travels, including the six S2 passes per year. So there was a real practical impact to our pilots and our position. And eventually, you know, ultimately the company did agree and we were able to find a negotiated settlement to this, this issue. And what was really encouraging about this LOA was we really got back to the same kind of bargaining philosophies that have, that have made us mutually successful with the company. And that is, let's solve each other's problems and let's unlock mutual benefits. And we were really able to accomplish that. It's been uh, some hard going during the pandemic, but I think we really turned a corner with this LOA and it is, again, going to be wildly popular. And once that runs the course, you will enjoy call-in honest benefits permanently in our contract, which is something that 
even if it may not affect you today, very well could be a benefit for you in the future. So we're, we were glad to achieve it, and it was a, definitely a good way to start this Q1 of 2021. All right, so let's switch gears now and welcome our Grievance Committee Chairman and New York City LEC First Officer Representative, Captain Sam Friedman Cowan. Sam, welcome to the show. Why don't you take a few moments and uh, introduce yourself to the pilot group? Sure. Well, first off, thank you for having me. Uh, just kind of an introduction to myself. I grew up in New Hampshire, started flying while I was a kid, uh, eventually became a flight instructor, did some corporate work before I was hired on at Endeavor in February of 2017, started as a New York City 200 first officer, about a year in, switched over to the CRJ 900, and then about a year ago, upgraded into New York uh, right at the start of the pandemic as a New York CRJ 900 captain. And then at the end of last fall, I was actually displaced, so I'm presently into an Atlanta 200 captain. Uh, I started on the Grievance Committee just as I got off probation in February of 2018. I was elected to the New York City LEC at the end of that year, took office in the spring of 2019, became the Grievance Vice Chair in June of 2019, and then I was uh, appointed to be the Grievance Chair in July of 2020. Well, thanks, Sam, and again, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. The impetus behind uh, today's podcast actually was driven by several pilots, both in our pilot group and our P2P ranks, reaching out to us and kind of talking to us about, hey, you guys use a lot of these terms like remedy request and grievance and arbitration, and we really don't know how all of those coincide. So why don't we start by just kind of defining a few basic terms uh, to the pilot group that are often interchanged, but mean very, very different and specific things. Sure. So a pilot issue form is where almost everything starts. That's where the pilot group really interfaces with the grievance committee. And a pilot issue form is at its core, nothing more than saying, I think something is wrong. I think that what happened to me is non-contractual. Um, every once in a while, we use them to track even things that we aren't even sure are non-contractual, but just as a way to gather data. Uh, what happens is when the grievance committee receives an issue form, it gets assigned to a committee member. The committee member will look at the issue form and decide whether or not it's a violation or not. Um, if it is a violation, then we send it to the company. Uh, if there isn't a violation, then the committee member will contact the pilot either via email or phone call to explain why it wasn't a violation. Um, you contrast that with a grievance, which is really only filed by the association. Uh, grievances can be filed on behalf of a single pilot. We'll most commonly do that in the case of a discipline case. That's an individual grievance. Uh, you contrast that against a contract case, which almost exclusively are filed as group grievances, meaning that while we might cite an individual example, they're filed on behalf of the entire pilot group to capture any affected pilot by a contract violation. All right, so you talked about these these pilot issue forms. So, you know, how many do you usually see in a given month, you know, and how many of those end up being issues that are sent to remedy request? And, you know, kind of of those, how many are you able to solve at remedy request versus actually having to go through the grievance process and possibly do an arbitrator? Sure. So 2020, I'm sure everyone will agree, was a pretty weird year. So if we look at 2019, because it was a more conventional year, our high watermark in 2019 was in July and December, which makes sense. That's when our flying is highest, pilots are flying the most. Uh, in July and December of 2019, we received about 180 issue forms each month. Overall in 2019, we received just shy of 1,700 issue forms total. Uh, when you compare that to 2020, we saw the opposite kind of happen as what we expect. Normally, February is our slowest month, and February of 2020 was very high. If you remember, that was right before the pandemic. We were flying a lot. We were actually starting to see junior assignments uh, for the first time in a long time. 
And we reached a high watermark in, Feb in February of 150 pilot issue forms, which is quite high. Um, but then overall, it dropped off, especially over the summer as the pandemic first started. So in 2020, we received about 1,000 issue forms, contrasted by 1,700 the year prior. As far as how many turn out to be violations, usually it's about two-thirds are not violations. You know, we very often receive emails or a pilot might call me and say, hey, this happened to me, should I bother submitting an issue form? And the answer is always yes. By the time you explain to us or, or even type up an email explaining what happened, you could have just submitted an issue form. And nine times out of 10, I'm not going to be able to tell you right on the phone whether it is a violation or not. I'm going to need to do some research. So you might as well submit the issue form. You don't need to worry about, you know, sometimes pilots say, I don't want to waste your time. That's not how this works. We're here to serve you folks. So um, you don't need to worry about, is this a violation or not? Most of the issue forms we receive aren't violations. So what are some common pilot issue forms that are filed that you're seeing that aren't issues by the pilot group? So there are two kind of avenues here. There are issue forms that a pilot would have no way of knowing isn't an issue. And for example, Flicka issue forms. You know, I requested this trip from open time and it was denied. Flicka issue forms can be very difficult for a pilot to determine whether or not it's a violation. The grievance committee has access to a lot of tools like, for example, we have administrative access to CrewTrack, we have administrative access to Flicka, we have administrative access to Rainmaker, uh, we have administrative access to TrimWeb. And so that allows us to go back and see what happened when, whereas a line pilot really doesn't have access to those tools. So if a pilot thinks that somebody got a trip out of order, there's really no way for them to be able to determine that. So we receive a lot of Flicka issue forms that really are not violations, but absolutely no fault on the part of the crew member. They had no way of knowing that. So the, those kind of turn into just requests for the grievance committee to go in there and just double check and ascertain the validity of the denial or the denial reason. Yeah. What happens not infrequently is a pilot will submit something for one item and we'll go and look and that was contractual or uh, that was contractual, but something else was not contractual. And we've stumbled onto kind of large-scale issues this way. I would like to say that we find these large-scale issues based on intuition and detective work, and that really isn't true. A lot of the time, either we're tipped off or somebody just comes to us with something totally off the wall, not related at all. And by the time we're done investigating it, we've found some totally different issue that, that we need to then really dive down into. Yeah, I think this would be a good time to also talk about EDV contract questions. You know, Sam, I know that you are extremely active, if not the most active uh, participant on EDV contract questions, but there's uh, about nine or 10 of us that are actually on that email thread, but only a couple of us actually have the kind of access that you're talking about. And we do see a lot of contract questions come in and they're asking us, hey, uh, I picked up this trip or hey, is this a violation? And I think what you're saying is it's probably best to just go ahead and file the issue form because the vast majority of us on that, that email we don't have the kind of access that, that is really needed to be able to determine that. EDV contract questions is really there for clarifications, for interpretations, those types of issues. So if you do see that you have one of those types of requests that Sam was just talking about, just go ahead and submit the pilot issue form and the grievance committee will, will certainly take care of that. Now, we talked a little bit about what isn't a violation, but can you talk to me about what happens when you find something that is a violation? Sure. So. A common example would be a reserve order of assignment issue where a pilot identifies that they were assigned a reserve assignment out of order, maybe they should have gotten a trip, maybe they shouldn't have gotten a trip, and we determine that they're correct, that the reserve assignment was out of order. Once we've determined that, the grievance committee volunteer will rewrite the issue form to make it a little bit more fancy, make sure we're citing the exact contract provision that was 
violated, make sure that we're providing additional information that the pilot may not have access to, maybe information about the other pilot that it was assigned to. We take that information, we bundle it up into an issue form, and we send it to the company. We call that a remedy request. And we basically say, hey, we think this was wrong. We want you to remedy it. Remedy request is a voluntary process between the association and the company to avoid grievances. By identifying these easy-to-fix issues or these somewhat small-scale issues that don't necessarily need to go through grievance and to an arbitrator, we are able to keep workload down for both sides. What happens for contract violations that don't have a specific financial harm to the pilot is we generally will send those over to the company with a four-hour remedy request. That's a number that we've been using for a long time, and we'll talk about grievances later and where the incentive for the company comes to settle items through remedy requests, even at cost. Occasionally, for specific items, we will request more money. Deadhead connections are a very common example of this. It's a, it's a simple issue that's been happening for a long time. And the company has attempted to fix it. The company has put out in memos to schedulers, and it just does not get fixed. And so deadhead connections, for example, we request a six-hour remedy. Just because something happens a lot does not mean that we request an elevated remedy. For example, we don't request elevated remedies on notification issues because those are nuanced enough and change from situation to situation enough that we don't think it would be fair really to, to start really hammering them on notification issues. You contrast that again with specific financial harm. The most common example would be a denied Flicka ad. If I request to add a 20-hour trip out of open time, which is going to be 30 hours at time and a half, and it gets denied, and you don't pick up over those same days, then you were specifically financially harmed by 30 hours, and we are going to request a 30-hour payout for you. And assuming the company agrees that the request was improperly denied, then they will pay out that 30-hour. Yeah, so remedy request is a very easy way to make sure that our pilots, A, aren't monetarily harmed, and B, if there is a contract violation, there is some sort of monetary remedy. But, you know, remedy request meetings are non-precedent. We can't take a look at what is being done inside that realm, inside the grievance process. So let's then switch gears because there are going to be times, and I'm sure you'll talk to the pilot group about this, Sam, where we take something to remedy and there isn't an agreement. And that does happen. And then what is the next step? The next step is usually going to turn, take an issue form into a grievance. So talk to us about how that happens. Sure. So first, I should talk a little bit about how we determine whether or not something is a violation. Obviously, we first look at what the contract says, but we also need to look beyond that. There are two more principles commonly used in contract enforcement. Those are negotiated intent and past practice, and they're exactly what they sound like at, at their core. Negotiated intent is what did we mean, what did both parties mean when we agreed to this provision in negotiations? Obviously, you can say something and realize later that you didn't mean for it to sound like that. I think we've all had a conversation where we said something, and then as it's leaving our lips, we kind of want to pull it back into our mouths. Obviously, negotiating is a little bit more deliberate, but it still happens. Or maybe we come into a circumstance that we didn't anticipate, and now we've got to figure out, well, what did both parties agree to at the table? Uh, a good example of negotiated intent is that if a pilot is double displaced, so say a pilot is displaced from New York to Atlanta and then displaced from Atlanta to Detroit shortly thereafter, they're entitled to all the displacement rights, including the right to have basically a paid move from New York to, it, to Detroit even though they were first displaced to Atlanta along the way. The reason is the intent was, hey, the circumstances happened beyond the pilot's control. 
they should be able to just move directly from New York to Detroit. And so it's not directly codified in the current JCBA, but it's something that through negotiated intent we're able to capture. An example of past practice is our past travel policy with regards to retirement. The JCBA very clearly says that in order to qualify for retiree past travel, you need to be 55 years old and have had 10 years of active service. But through past practice on the company's part, which they put us on notice of some time ago, they've reduced that below 55 years of age. And because that's favorable to our pilot group, we agreed to it at the time. Now we have yet to correct the error in the JCBA, but it is binding because it's both a longstanding past practice and the company put the association on notice. And those two things are very important. It can't just be that the company has done something for a long time and they get to say, oh, well now this is past practice. No, we need to know that you were doing it. Sure, so for a contract violation, I'll sit down with all of the information myself and write up a more formal document. It's very similar to the remedy request at its core. It's just a little bit more fancily worded. And then we'll send that to the company in a formal document and say, hey, we are filing a grievance on this topic. If you remember earlier, we received somewhere around 1,500 issue forms a year. Somewhere, you know, 2019 was higher, or about 1,700. On average, we file around 20 or 30 grievances a year. So that really gives you an idea as to how few items get to the grievance level. Once we file the grievance, we have a monthly meeting with the company, just like we monthly meet with them for remedy request. We have a monthly meeting that we call initial hearings. And that's where we kind of brief the company on, hey, this has happened. Let's talk through this. Let's add some color. Let's have a two-way exchange of information because the company may have information that we don't have. There may be a past practice that they put us on notice of that we've forgotten about. That happened in 2020. We filed a grievance and there was a clear past practice that we were clearly put on notice of. They provided the email exchange from some years ago. And so we had to withdraw the grievance, even though we felt we had merits before initial hearings. After initial hearings, we realized we didn't. So we have initial hearings. We have some exchange. It's not unusual for a grievance to go through a few initial hearings. We may want to follow up. We may want to do some more digging. The company may want to do some more digging. But after a few initial hearings, we should know what we want to do. Either the company might convince us that this isn't really grievance worthy, like at that situation I just discussed where there was a clear past practice. We might convince the company that, that they need to settle this. This happens with a lot of grievances. Probably half or so grievances get filed with a settlement favorable to the association. And that settlement may just be a cease and desist if there isn't a specifically harmed pilot or there may be a remedy payout to that pilot, or if there was financial impact, it's very similar to the remedy request process. Do we have to have a specifically we do pilot? need We do need a specific event. It's a little bit different from remedy request because like I said, contract violations that are sent as grievances are sent on behalf of the pilot group. But if you read one of these formal grievances, you'll see I explain what the issue is, and then I have to provide examples as to how this has actually caused an, an issue. Um, there may not be a harmed pilots specifically, for example, if flying is improperly withheld from open time, it's difficult for us to point to a specific pilot and say John Doe, employee number 12345, was harmed because nobody was able to pick up that flying. But we have a specific instance of a contract violation where, where, we, where we are able to point to a, an issue that happened. We need a specific event to have happened in order to file a grievance. All right, Sam, so you talked about how there could be several rounds of initial hearings and we're trying to work towards some type of settlement or some type of agreement. But at some point in time, we're gonna probably become deadlocked. And at that point in time, what is the next step to keep this process moving forward for the pilots? 
Sure. So if we can't come to an agreement at initial hearings in either the company nor the association's favor, then we're going to start to set it up for arbitration. So what happens is for contract issues or disciplinary issues that we can't come to resolution on, we have a means in our JCBA, we're actually required to go this route under the Railway Labor Act, where we arbitrate. And we have what we call a system board of adjustment, which is just a fancy way of saying arbitration. We call it system board because it's a three-member panel, one company representative, one pilot group representative, and a neutral third-party arbitrator. Well, you can guess how the company representative is going to vote, and you can guess how the pilot representative is going to vote. So really, it comes down to which side can convince the neutral third-party arbitrator. We schedule somewhere around six or so arbitrations a year. We only schedule that many because they're expensive, and we don't necessarily need all of them. We may file a grievance and then do something called hold it in abeyance, and there are any number of reasons why we might do that. It's just a fancy way of saying we're not going to move forward on it quickly. We, don't also, we also don't work through grievances in chronological order. We don't work through them in the order that we receive them. We give some a higher priority and some a lower priority. For example, a termination that we feel we have a strong ability to win where the pilot would be restored to active status. We might prioritize that because that has a very direct impact on that pilot. You contrast that with a contract case that maybe we feel strongly about, but there wasn't a specifically harmed pilot or the pilot that was harmed was only harmed in a relatively minor way. Maybe they only lost a few hours of pay that they would have received above guarantee. Those will obviously get pushed down to the bottom of the stack. So we schedule these half a dozen or so arbitrations. Ordinarily, a few months in advance, we'll tell the company we want to put this case in front of this arbitrator, and usually they say that's fine. Every once in a while, they'll feel a little more strongly, and they'll say, no, we'd really rather this not go to this arbitrator, and we'll generally just find another case. Let's say we have a really contentious case that we're having a hard time agreeing on an arbitrator for, uh, neither the company nor the association can come to an agreement, then we have what we call alternate strike method, and that works similarly to getting picked last for dodgeball. We have this list, we go down the list, you know, we'll strike a name off and hand it to the company, the company will strike a name off and hand it back to us, and at the end of it, we finally will have one name left, and that's who will hear that case. So Sam, you talked about arbitrations uh, being very cost-intrusive. So typically, we save these for more of our contentious cases or cases that are going to affect um, either an individual pilot because of a uh, termination, or they're going to affect uh, every pilot here at Endeavor. Uh, for instance, we pursued expedited arbitration on the positive space grievance under the clause of ongoing financial harm to the pilot group. So why don't you talk to our listeners about what kind of costs are incurred by the association through that arbitration process, because it is, it is definitely not done for free. Yeah, it is incredibly expensive. And the pilots listening are going to realize that they went into the wrong line of work once they understand this. So arbitrators typically charge us around $3,000 per day. And that's a good average. There are some that are below that. There are some that are well above that. The ones that are well above that, we have started to shy away from booking. The one good thing about arbitrators is they will allow you to cancel in advance by usually about a month. So we can frequently use, especially an expensive arbitrator, to convince the company to settle a case that they might otherwise want to arbitrate. We wait until the week before the cancellation deadline, and we'll go to the company and say, are you sure about this? Do you really want to spend this money? 
And oftentimes we're able to negotiate settlements in exchange for just canceling that arbitration outright. Well, does the company have costs in all of this too? Yeah, so actually the company and the association split the cost of arbitration 50-50. So this arbitrator typically costs $3,000 a day. We usually only need them for one day of hearings unless we're hearing multiple cases. But even at one day of hearings, there are then days where they've got to research, there are days where they've got to write the brief. So there are days where they've got to write the decision. So even a $3,000 a day arbitrator with one day of hearings usually ends up costing over $10,000. And then that's split 50-50 by the company and the association. And then on top of the monetary cost, there's also some time cost. Arbitrations demand a lot of time from both sides. Both the company and the association has to spend a lot of time prepping for arbitrations. Then we've got to spend a full day in the hearings. We've got to write a post-arbitration brief. This all takes a lot of time from some very important resources like our attorney. And so we try to avoid it for that reason, but also they're just unpredictable. So we lose cases we should win and we win cases we should lose. And it happens all the time. We lost a watertight contract case in 2019 that is still a sore spot among the grievance committee. And we've won cases that we should probably not have won, but that's kind of how arbitration works. And the company knows that. And that's an incentive on both sides to come to an agreement via settlement as opposed to arbitrating. And it's kind of a good thing that arbitration is unpredictable. Obviously, I'm not happy that we lose cases that I think we should win, but that does mean that even in cases where the company feels pretty confident about their case, it makes them second guess and think, would we rather go to a settlement that's a known quantity before we go anywhere, as opposed to arbitration, which really could go anywhere and everywhere. Well, that's why at the beginning of the podcast, when you know I was talking through the introduction about the positive space LOA and the reason that we were willing to negotiate some of these grievances, we talked about that uh, in detail. Arbitrations are variable. You can't control the outcome. At least through negotiations, each party can better control the outcome for their respective groups. And so oftentimes a negotiated settlement is the best solution. Uh, not always achievable, but it is the best solution. But the point is we have several mechanisms and several layers to try to avoid that process where we really do put it into somebody else's hands because then we, we're we not in, the, in control anymore. We're not in the driver's seat. Well, Sam, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. I think that that was a lot of really good information for our pilots about pilot issue forums, remedies, arbitrations, and grievances. So thank you so much, and thank you for all the work that you do. Um, if you have sent an email to EDV contract questions, it is likely that Sam has responded to it. You are a very hard worker, and it is a, a blessing to have you as the Grievance Committee Chairman and on the NBC, and thank you for everything that you do. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. If pilots have questions specifically for the Grievance Committee, maybe they want to know the status of an issue form they submitted, best way to reach us is edvgrievance at alpa.org. Of course, they can submit pilot issue forms at edvpilotissue.com. And then for time-sensitive or hypothetical questions, edvcontractquestions at alpa.org is always a good avenue. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. We really appreciate it. As we wrap up the podcast, remember that we, we do like to answer questions from the front line. We didn't have any submitted this month, but if you do have a question, please email edvonair at alpa.org and the MEC will send you a small gift. So as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, we do appreciate everything that you do. Fly safe and be safe out there and we'll see you out on the line. Send everything to 31, runway 28, quit the land.